Well, and it's California. It's my California license plate. Thanks, baby. Isn't that funny? Yeah. That that used to be my um my name, like Diva. Hey, there Hello. you are. <laughs> how are you? Great. How are you? Wonderful. You Wonderful. look fabulous. Uh, compared to what? <laughs> COVID fabulous. Generally. Uh, you guys both look good. You're not screaming divas. You're beautiful singers. Oh, thank you. You this are. Carrie Alchema. Yes, Carrie. Hi. Hi. Nice, nice to meet you. Pleasure. It's my pleasure. Glad to be oh, on the show. William Friedkin, but I call him Billy. Is that okay we call you Billy? Everybody calls me Billy. Okay. okay. <laughs> How is life? How are things? What's going on? Well, you know, I, I don't know how different it is where you are, but here they set another record today for the uh, convert, uh, coronavirus cases. But uh, it, it's really horrible. But, you know, before that, I was in the hospital for four, five months. I had all kinds of things wrong. I had everything from uh, E. coli in the blood to kidney problems, to uh, uh, gout, uh, and several other things thrown in. They thought I was going to die on three or oh. four occasions. Oh my! <laughs> I didn't know but, about uh, this. I, it, but I told them I had to be on the show on July fifteenth, and yeah. so that was it. But so uh, oh. you know, I don't get I don't get bothered by. Uh, being confined to the house at all. I do a lot of exercise okay. now, a lot, a lot of reading, a lot of swimming and walking. Oh, nice. And, uh, what's it like up there? Well, I'm in, I'm in Canada, as you know. Carrie's yeah. in Nashville. Oh. So in Canada, we are still, where I am in Canada, we're in phase two still. But we live in the middle of a big forest. So like you, it, it, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't bother us as much because we have space and we can go outside and do things. Yeah. Singing, of well, course. But I mean, Carrie's yeah. in Nashville and they're, they're now, where, what phase are you in? Uh, we had to go back into phase two. And yesterday we had over 700 cases in one day. We're over 15,000 now for just my county. That's not including the state of Tennessee. It's just my county. Na I live right downtown Nashville. So that's Davidson County. No school. School is uh, yeah. on, on virtual until after Labor Day, and then they'll reevaluate. Um, this is so, amazing. Yeah. Well, it, it's really bad here. The, California has set a new record. Yeah. And it's, it's just horrible. Do you ever go by the House of Cash? I have Johnny been, Cash Boulevard. Yes, I know where that is. <laughs> is it still, I've been there. I've, I was a okay. friend of Johnny Cash and visited his house and I recorded a song. His son actually uh, was the recording engineer. Uh, we recorded his song, um, When the Man Comes Around, oh, for, cool. uh, for a film I made called The Hunted. And... Uh, he he wrote that for my film, and we recorded it there in a tiny little room, the size of a broom closet. But he had these wonderful women around taking care of him, his wife and her sister, and a couple of nurses, and he he was really pampered. 
but he was, a, did you ever meet him? I never did, no. Wonderful guy, just a absolutely great human being. Just like, uh, we read your book, which is the one that you gave me, thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And it is, it's an amazing book. Did you write that or did oh, you? Oh yeah, yeah, I had no help, didn't dig, I wrote it in longhand on yellow pads Whoa. All, over the, all over the world. Wow. And then I, I would send portions of it at a time to my editor at HarperCollins up here, Carrie, mm -hmm. and she would suggest some changes and I made the changes and uh, it came up. It's now be, been translated into several other languages and there's an audio book of it now. Oh, cool. A it's lot of stuff. It, you're it won the best uh, film book award in Italy and France two years ago. Your life is fascinating. I mean, I can't remember what I did 10 years ago, and you remembered your whole life story. It's, so how you does it could. You could if you had to. Yeah. If someone said yeah. to you, write your life story, you would have to close it all in, sit down, and just remember but what I did also is I went to a number of people uh, that I could reach who were involved in a lot of the situations that I was involved in. And I asked them, I interviewed them. And here's the interesting thing about memory. They remembered the same events, but they remembered them a different way. And so I had to figure out you know, how to compensate for that. That that was the most difficult part because I I trusted my own memory, but I also, you know, it's like your view of this conversation will be different from Carrie's and from mine mm -hmm. yeah. because of what you're looking at and what I'm looking at. Just and like our memory, live performance, right? Some like live performance, yes. It, it says something different to everyone who hears it. Now, I, um, I'm probably jumping the gun in this conversation, but I was just really curious because I know that you and Sandra have worked on an opera together, but throughout your whole career of film and TV, how did you decide or get into saying, I wanted to, draw, I wanted to direct an opera? Um, have you always <laughs> been an opera fan? Is that why that no. I'll tell you very briefly. I, I mentioned to you that Zubin Mehta is a good friend of mine. And we've, we've been seeing each other, our families for years. And one day at dinner at his house, he said to me, why don't you do an opera with me? And this was in 1996. And I said, gee, Zubin, I've never seen an opera. And I hadn't. He said, no, but we, We've talked a lot about operas. I said, I've listened to a great many operas from a great many different composers and periods, but okay. I've never seen a staging. And he said, no, I think you'd be very good. Uh, what would you do if you had the chance? And uh, I said, in order to put him off, mm -hmm. I said, well, I would either do, I would do, either one of the two Alban Berg operas, which are Wozzeck mm -hmm. and Lulu. Yes. Now these are 20th century operas, <laughs> as you know, and they are, they are not beloved. No. <laughs> Certainly in Italy, which is what he was talking about, Florence, right. 
where they don't, where they don't, where, where they don't love German opera, and they especially don't love Wozzeck or Lulu. <laughs> right. And uh, but I said, well, I'd do either one of those because I really did like them and I appreciated them. Sure. And he went out of the room and he came back with his uh, diary, which was about this thick, and. It had all of his bookings for the next five years. And he leafed through that at the dinner table. And he said, okay, I'll do Wozzeck with you in two years if you commit to it now. And uh, oh my, my, God. my wife said, oh, go ahead. It'll be fun. And <laughs> I said, yeah, fun for you. Yeah. And, but uh, so I said, okay. And I, for a year, I did nothing. And then I got a, I was making a film. And then I got a call from him saying, how is our WhatsApp coming? And I said, I haven't done anything. Uh, and um, at that point, I began to study German. So I could oh. read the opera in German. Okay. And read, you know, the text, the libretto, as you say. Mm -hmm. And... I began to think about it, and I had a concept. By the time I had to send that concept off to the technicians at Florence. Okay. So, and I sent them sketches for what I would do with the sets, mm -hmm. and I decided to do decided to do it as kind of a um, uh, with what we call. Um, uh, different size and shapes of the stage. Oh. There, so there would be some scenes that were done with a low ceiling, like this, there's a scene in the tavern mm -hmm. where Wozzeck comes in in the last act mm -hmm. and he comes in for a drink and all the patrons in the bar see the blood on his hands. And that scene was done uh, with half the stage, like one of those low ceiling bars in yeah. oh. Germany. Okay. And, and then when he left the scene, as he was leaving, all of the patrons began to point at him and point at his hands and the stage slowly narrowed in until he was the only one on the stage looking at the blood on his hands. Ooh. And then he pushes back against the stage closing in on him and suddenly he's outdoors in the forest again where he killed marie wow and, cool. and that was the whole stage okay and so i used what we call in in cinema dynamic framing okay. i used dynamic framing of the stage the house where Wozzeck and marie lived with their little child i had an invisible rollers so that from behind mm -hmm. the stage hands could move it from far upstage uh -huh. to far downstage okay like you were going into a close-up yeah and and i used i haven't done that on any of the other operas i directed no but i used that on on WhatsApp, a kind of cinema technique well you obviously loved loved doing it because then you did it oh yeah so everything I did after that came out of from that. 
I never had an agent in opera. You just I did would, it. I would just get called by various conductors and opera companies. Okay. I did um, Aida twice in Torino and uh, with two different casts. Cool. And um, uh, then it was, we did it in Oman. It moved. I, I did um, uh, Samson and Delilah in Tel Aviv. Oh, cool. Which okay. we later staged in uh, Timna, where Samson and Delilah lived. <laughs> That's awesome. And okay. uh, so I, I've done quite a few. And I did, the best experience I ever had was with Sandra on Swara Angelica. Yay. First of all, it's an amazing piece of work. Yes. You know, it's beyond. Mm -hmm. And second of all, I decided to do it literally as Puccini wanted it done. I didn't do any uh, interpretation that would exceed uh, the period mm -hmm. and the time and, and the things that he wanted. Like, and what and I got into a big beef, as Sandra knows, yes. with James Conlon, the conductor. About who, the vision. What? Right. About the ending. Well, the ending, in the ending, Puccini says, the angel of mercy appears. And that, of course, is the mother of God. It's Mary. And uh, I'm not Catholic, but I can read a libretto. And I understood that the composer knew what he wanted. And I said that to Conlon publicly. You know, people were watching the rehearsal and mm -hmm. Placido was there. And I said, he begged me not to do that because he was a lapsed Catholic. And oh. I was not Catholic, but you know, this is what Puccini wanted. And I, and I said, James, this opera is not about you. It's, it's, it's about Swara Angelica. And to her, in her final moments of life, the angel of mercy appears. That doesn't mean a stained glass window lights up or the statue of a crucifix appears on the wall. Interesting. So I had an effect where a, a very uh, lovely young woman appears in midair above her and brings her dead son out of the church. Not Beckons her dead son. Eye. Not a dry eye in the house, including Placido Domingo crying for 15 minutes after the show was over. Whoa. Well, he said to me uh, at the after party, he said, today you have made all of Los Angeles Catholic. <laughs> That's great. But I think I think Conlon hates me to this day because but you were true to yourself. You were honest and you were true to the libretto and you were true to what you believe in and you are the director and it is your responsibility to tell the story. Mm -hmm. Well, I believe Sandra as I think we talked about this and Carrie uh that the most important element of the opera is the work itself. Even though the composer may is more than not long dead. The composer's dead, but what he has written is the most important element. Then come the performers. There is a, a kind of a sliding scale. It's not this far apart, 
it's it's this far apart right. but it's the it's the piece itself the performers the conductor and then the stage director mm -hmm. i realized that as the stage director i was last on the totem pole but nevertheless what i had to do was fulfill the concept of the composer and that was it now i don't know what they did in the first performances but the libretto says the angel of mercy appears yeah and that meant something to me sure it's it still is the highlight of my career i have i have my little flowers here still it's on my oh table. wow yes <laughs> but you know you taught me uh, Carrie, Carrie and I have discussed this, and I say this a lot in interviews. You taught, gave me the best piece of advice that anyone could ever give me, and that is to find stillness on stage. And you told me during that aria, the senza mama, first off, you whispered something in my ear and said, think of your father right before I sang that aria. But yeah. you told me to trust the stillness. And as wow. an actor, it's impossible. It's really hard to do because you think. Yeah, that's I, I know. But you do belong to the, the new generation of opera singers who want to give a performance, not a concert. Right. You know, in, in the past, uh, a singer as great as Pavarotti could just come out on stage and give a concert. He didn't have to pretend anything. He wore the costume, but he didn't have to really act it. No. And today I found that the great singers want to perform it. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so I've been very fortunate in having, in working with people, you know, like that. Um, and I've never had any other problems with, with conductors. All over, you know, the world where I, I have directed operas, um, but th this thing with Conlon, it, I didn't realize how uh, powerful um, a feeling he had against the whole idea of Catholicism, yeah. which made me wonder why would you agree to do that opera? Absolutely, because that's what it is. Yeah. She is Sister Angelica. She's a, a nun. Mm -hmm. You know, she's not working in a bar somewhere. No. <laughs> different directing a movie or television opposed to opera. Is it different? Is it similar? No. no. The only difference on the stage is you have no camera. With a camera, as a director, you can decide what you want the audience to see and exactly when you want them to see it or see something else that's happening in the film. But uh, on the stage, you can do the same thing with staging and lighting that emphasizes one character and de-emphasizes another, or you can, uh, you can uh, emphasize a certain area of the stage and not the others. And, and then your interpretation worked out with the singers mm -hmm. is uh, the same as you, you do with great actors. I don't go to the great actors I've worked with, some of whom have won Academy Awards. I don't go to them and, and dictate to them how to do it. I'll simply make a suggestion. 
And as with Sandra, it's kind of, you, you become kind of like a psychiatrist, you know? <laughs> in the, no, in the sense that you find out what it is that moves them or mm -hmm. what it is that makes them sad or happy. And that's the same thing I did with the little girl in The Exorcist, you know? And I would refer, I would whisper in her ear, Sandra, before she had to do a scene, something relative to feelings she had that she told me about when we first met. And I, I, I very much encourage that, which means that as the director, you have to reveal a lot about yourself as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so then, so then you would say working with opera singers versus working with actors really isn't a whole lot of difference then? No, they want the same. Great singers, I believe, mm -hmm. want the same as what great actors want, which is a psychological underpinning for their character and a staging that works. Love that. Where they can, where they can be seen and heard. I, You're not going to do a staging where you're hiding, you know, <laughs> the character. But I've seen that. Yes. I've seen such things where I'm sure you have to fight to be seen on the stage. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, sorry, I could, I could hug you for that. Yeah. Because those are the directors that I know Sandra and I, I think I could say this for Sandra, um, gravitate towards are the ones that really want all of it. They want the singing, they want the acting, they want a story. I want to rip the audience's heart out. I want stillness from the audience too. I want to know that they can barely take a breath. So yeah. um, that that's, um, yeah, so I could hug you for that. Thanks. Because I had never really worked in the world of opera, I came in with that notion. I didn't read about it somewhere. Okay. I, I came in realizing that opera singers were not pawns mm -hmm. to be, be shifted about willy-nilly. You know, that they, they were portraying characters. Mm -hmm. that, yep. You know, and, and they had to be seen and heard clearly. That was first. And then, in most of the rehearsals that I did, we would talk about the characters, not necessarily work on you go there and then you go here, or you go there. For the most part, Sandra, I think you'll recall when we worked together, the, the, the singers found their own way. Yeah. You found your way, but in relation to the other singers, you well, weren't giving had, a, a solo. We had the rehearsal time too, and we had the time to explore all of that. And Do you not now? Really? No. no. Why? New rehearsal introductions a little bit more, but, but nothing like what we had. We were so fortunate there, and we had such a great close-knit cast that everybody really fed off of each other and but you created that that atmosphere and I think that's what a great director does is allow us to put our personal stamp on it yet still kind of follow your your path that you have created for us and it's a collaboration and you allowed us to do no that. doubt but the path was Puccini's path yes. the path is always what the I've seen productions 
of certain classic works that absolutely appalled me since. <laughs> Uh, there was a production in uh, Munich uh, of I uh, what was it uh, Rigoletto Rigoletto that was done <laughs> in in the newsroom in Iraq. It was staged in a newsroom in Iraq as a contemporary work. And then I've seen other production, one that Zubin conducted, uh, that uh, where all the singers were uh, masked and dressed as, uh, I don't know what the hell they were supposed to be, gorillas or bunny rabbits. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. gorillas. The, uh, the gorillas, was that Nabucco? Probably. There, everyone in the cast was dressed as a gorilla. And then I, I saw a production by a great director who, who did it here in LA, a really great director, but who so underlit the stage that you couldn't tell the characters oh. unless you knew the right. libretto itself. If you knew who they were supposed to be, you could figure it out. But if you came to this opera fresh, you didn't know who the hell was singing. I know. So I want to ask you, let's go there, because you're known as a, a film, cinema, TV, documentary director. How does a kid from the north side of Chicago become William Friedkin, the Academy Award-winning director? There are only three things that are necessary to, unlike your mutual professions, I would not say that one of those things is talent to do what I did. There are three things that are required. Okay. Ambition is the first. Luck is the second. And the grace of God is third and most important. The grace of God. I, I never went to college. I never studied filmmaking. Okay. Uh, you know, I've never had one lesson in how to make the film or use a camera or anything. Wow. Uh, but it had, I can honestly tell you, it's the grace of God, the path that I've taken. And it's why I don't go crazy on the rare occasions when I get sick, because I realize that that's the grace of God as well. <laughs> and I really believe that there, there is a force that controls our lives. It, it, and, and it's different for everyone. You meet somebody, uh, you're attracted to them, you fall in love with them perhaps. Mm -hmm. Somebody else meets the same person and gets no feeling whatever. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah. um, you know, it, it's the grace of God. And in order to do what, what I've done and I'm sure what you've done, one of the characters that we, characteristics we share is ambition. You must be ambitious mm -hmm. yes. to do the kind of work and study that you do to perfect your instrument. You've got to be ambitious and believe. And then you need a bit of luck there, you know? Yeah. And uh, 
I would like uh, to add a fourth thing though, and that is being a good human being. Well, there are a lot of people I couldn't characterize that way, Sandra, that are very <laughs> successful. I won't lie to you. They're very successful, yeah. but I, I, I wouldn't add that. I think okay. in terms of you saying it, you're absolutely right, because I believe you are. A and I great, think you are. Well, yeah, we, but we all, we all have our faults, of course, but uh, without ambition, luck, and the grace of God, you're not going to succeed in, in any creative position, you know. It's not so, you can't go to law school for it or learn it somewhere or medical school, yeah. which, requires speci which require specifically acquired skills. Mm. But to sing the way the two of you do is a gift of God. Absolutely. You can learn, you know, how to put forth the notes. You, 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 can, you can learn and you can, in collaboration with the conductor, decide uh, the, the tempi, you know, the, the, um, the volume, mm -hmm. louder or softer, but the rest is from God. Nobody can go to school and learn to become a successful opera singer. You can learn to sing opera, sure, but not to become a, a successful singer. That's a gift. Yeah. What I love, you gotta, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. What I, what I love about that is um, Sandra and I have been friends for a long time. And what we've discovered is that our ambitions were different, different levels, different her, she knew she wanted to be at the Met. That was her goal. I want to sing on the Metropolitan Opera stage. My goal was because no one actually thought I could make a living doing it, and I wanted to prove them wrong. I wanted to say, no, I can buy a house doing this. I can pay my bills by singing opera. I mean, who does that? And, um, and so I really wanted that. And then my goals changed because I thought I had accomplished that. And I said, well, now I want to work with some of the best. I don't, it doesn't matter what the stage is, but I want to work with some of the best conductors, directors, and singers. And I've been really fortunate enough to be able to say I've done that. And there's still opera houses I want to step foot on, um, but it was our ambition, yeah, hopefully, God willing. But, um, but I, love, I love that conversation between Sandra and I about what our ambitious goals were. Yeah. Yes, they, they differed in small ways. Yeah, mm -hmm. I can see that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to have the gift somehow gonna have uh, i remember one night to one of sandra's performances i brought barbara streisand who is a friend of is a friend of mine wow and i she's never done this at the end of sandra's performance she said to me i want to meet her now she doesn't do that she okay. doesn't want to meet anybody you know, she lives in a world where they want to meet her. Sure. And she lives that world out. Mm -hmm. And she said, I, and at the end, there was another opera that uh, uh, there were, th it was Il Tritico, so there were three operas. Mm -hmm. And the th there was another opera, Johnny Skiki, which okay. followed Suar Angelica. And she waited through it and all that, and then she said, come on, let's go backstage. 
And I took her backstage and she was like a student talking to Sandra. She uh -huh. asked her, I stayed away from their private conversation, but I remember hearing her ask Sandra how she achieved certain techniques. How do you sing and like that, Sandra? And I said, you're Barbara Streisand. <laughs> <laughs> you're asking me. Well, was, she is totally an honest place. It was sincere and open, and mm -hmm. and truly, she wanted to know, and cool. that's why she's she is who she is because she's always wanting to learn and grow and and experience new things, just like you taking on opera. Yeah. Well, she had this natural gift, mm. you know. She, I mean, her gift. Everybody in her youth told her, get her nose changed, yeah. you know, change this. Change. And she resisted all of that from people who could hire or fire her. Yeah. And they all wanted to change her, but she believed in herself, yeah. which is, I guess, uh, another very important thing for anyone in the creative arts or or anything you must believe in yourself it's true even when times are tough yeah yes dear right have you you know i i, I mean we want to know all about your directing but i i want to go back to that point when we were talking about about a gift and a talent and religion seems to be something that circles back to you a lot with you watching an exorcism you watching a, a death row inmate get killed. And it seems like religion is, is so much a part of your life. Was, it, was that just by accident or has it, has it enlightened you? Has it changed your life, all of that? Well, I would say faith. Okay. Uh, more than organized religion. Yeah. I, I certainly believe in God. And that's a belief that you, you have. Or there, there have been some very intelligent and prominent people who did not believe in God. A, a guy like Christopher Hitchens, I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Uh, his last book before he died a couple of years ago was called God is Not Great. Yeah. And he, th there is a thing in the Catholic Church uh, known as the Devil's Advocate. That's a, it's, it's a real yeah. title. And what the, de and the devil's advocate is the guy who argues before uh, the College of Cardinals and the Pope mm -hmm. as to whether or not somebody should be granted sainthood, somebody from the past. Or, and in the case of Mother Teresa, when Mother Teresa was proposed for sainthood, Christopher Hitchens was the devil's advocate who wow. spoke against her being a saint. And he spent a large part of his life saying that she was a fraud. And he spoke against her sainthood. And uh, it was granted, but he was the devil's advocate in that case as a non-believer. And uh, I've read him and I'm really impressed with his writing and his thinking, but I just have within me the belief mm -hmm. that he didn't have. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm not sure about a lot of the tenets of the church or the synagogue or the mosque. I'm right. just not sure of a lot of the tenets of the human-made 
version mm -hmm. of faith. But I personally have faith in a, in a creator. I think if, it, if everything goes back to the Big Bang, who caused the Big Bang? Right. <laughs> I, I who caused whatever there was to bang? Yeah. You know? True. Somebody, some force. You know, it's called different things sometimes, Sandra. It's called nature, yeah. whatever. But I, Spiritualism, you know, yeah. Yeah. But God is good enough for me. And uh, I believe strongly. And I was raised in the Jewish hmm. religion, which I never felt close to. Interesting. I never, okay. I never felt close to the Jewish faith. And I'm, as I mentioned, I'm not Catholic, but I, I've had... I've come closer to experience faith in a Catholic church and from Catholic people who are really believers. And uh, I, when I hear somebody say they don't believe, they have no belief, I, I, I find it strange. But, you know, I respect it, but I don't relate to it. There's just so much yeah. in life that makes us think about the gift of faith, the mystery of faith. Okay. And that's what the exorcist is about. The yes. exorcist is about the mystery of faith. Brilliant. Love it. And you experienced an exorcism. I watched, uh, I got to meet the man who was the Vatican exorcist for 31 years. His oh. name was Father Gabriela Amort. And he had performed thousands over 31 years. I never particularly believed a lot in exorcism, even when I made the film. There was an actual case that it was based on, mm -hmm. and I tried to reflect that case to place in 1949 in Silver Spring, Maryland. There's a 14-year-old boy whose family was Lutheran. And he was examined by every uh, kind of medicine that existed at the time. Psychiatric, internal medicine, whatever. Mm -hmm. They could find no answer to what was alien. So they turned to the Lutheran church and the Lutheran minister said, we have nothing to deal with this. Go across town and try the Catholics. And uh, they did. and. Bill Blatty, uh, who wrote The Exorcist, was an undergraduate at Georgetown University, oh. where the film takes place, when that case appeared. And it was on the front page. People can still Google it. It was the front page of the Washington Post, August 20th, 1949. Wow. A detailed description of the manifestations and and what happened in that case. And Blatty, as a student, thought, if this can be true, if this is possibly true, this is existence of good and evil and the existence of God. It's yeah. religious nirvana. Yeah. And he wrote that book. He tried to write it as fact, but the uh -huh. church wouldn't give him any information about it they don't talk about it much because and the way i only got permission from father amort if i had gone to the vatican itself they would have denied 
permission. They don't think of it as a show. Mm -mm. You know, they, they, they don't think of it as an event to be witnessed. Uh, but when I witnessed and filmed this exorcism, which is, has been on um, Netflix now mm -hmm. for about almost four years, I think. Yeah. Uh, I believe that what I saw was happening. It was a, a woman in her 40s who was extremely um, upset and screwed up and speaking in different languages that she had never learned and with superhuman strength. And the exorcism was not successful. He had, this was the ninth exorcism this woman had gone through unsuccessfully and um, uh, Father Amort was planning because so often these things take years yeah. and sometimes they're not successful because the exorcist belief is that God Jesus the son of God is who they're praying to to do the exorcism and Jesus will do it or not as he sees fit and this was this woman's ninth, and he was going to do her tenth uh, in a matter of months, a couple of months, we passed away. And he, he is the most spiritual person I've ever met. Wow. He, he, he would make a believer out of you. Did it, did it, I mean, the concept. Yeah, it scared the hell out. Yeah, scared the shit out of you. Excuse me yeah. if I mean, okay. I was, I was terrified. I sat as close to the two of them with a little film camera as I'm sitting to my, putting my finger on it now, as I'm sitting to this monitor, I was two feet away. And I saw this thing go through its stages and I was terrified beyond belief. Absolutely. I just kept the camera on them and uh, let it play out but it was really disturbing and a lot of that's co it's covered in the in the little netflix documentary i made about it. wow that's fascinating did what it, that almost seems like life-changing to me and that it it is recognition that there is a higher being out there that that you know it's not us human beings here that there's something else bigger higher better powerful than us Yes, well, 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 we, there is. It, it's hard to admit that. I understand, but there is. Uh, well, especially uh, the, especially the spiritual warfare, which is what I grew up hearing uh, between good and evil, the yin and the yang of it all. Was a lot of people like to be, just believe the the God part, but they don't want to recognize the other side of it. So. And you really just kind of put it in everybody's face, like this is here and this is happening. So it's kind of amazing. Well, Father Amort, I had a lot of questions for him. Sure. And I asked him, for, he spoke about the devil, Satan. Mm -hmm. And he said that the devil is spirit. He said, there is no figure, you know, <laughs> with horns and right. a tail and, or any of that depiction mm -hmm. the devil is spirit mm -hmm. and he said that he 
had been able to speak with this spirit and converse with the spirit. Uh, and he also told me that the devil was a creature of God and at one time had goodness mm -hmm. attached to itself or himself, mm -hmm. um, but went astray, yeah. went bad, mm -hmm. and went into darkness. And uh, there's a documentary uh, that's been made about me that's on Amazon Prime. Okay. It's, it's called uh, Friedkin Uncut. Yeah, cool. Okay. It's 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 very good, very well. I didn't make it, but I'm the subject of it. I like it. But in it, I mean, the first thing I say is that to me, the two most interesting people in history were Hitler and Jesus. Hitler, because he took an entire generation of people into hell. Yeah. They followed this madman into hell yes uh and jesus because he lifted and continues to lift so many people to heaven mm -hmm. and um so i still read a great deal about both of them and to me they're the most amazing historical figures yin and yang as you say mm -hmm. okay. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so what was your aha moment billy I want to go back now to, to, to your directing because you're so brilliant at it. And we watched last night the movie that we read, you said was your favorite, and that was Jade. We watched Well, uh, I'm not sure it's my favorite, but it is one I have, I had a lot of fun making. But my, my favorite film is not one of my own. I don't see my own films. Uh, the film that caused me to become a director, and I would love to ask the two of you what caused you to want to sing out, what work it was. But in my case, I was about 20 years old and I saw Citizen Kane. I was working in live television in Chicago. A friend of mine whose uh, opinions I trust said, there's a movie playing at this revival theater and the near north side of Chicago. It was called the Surf Theater. <laughs> and and, and um, uh, it was Citizen Kane, which I'd never heard of. And on a Saturday afternoon, I went to the noon show of Citizen Kane and I stayed there all day. I watched, I guess, I watched it five consecutive times and I was just, stunned by the incredible uh, work that it synthesized all in one piece. The best cinematography I've ever seen, the best editing, the best lighting, the best performance, the best script, uh, everything about it was in a class by itself. And it, in, it has influenced, oh, probably millions of young filmmakers, even though it was not a successful uh, the box office film. And I saw that and I said to myself, this is what I want to do. Wow. I hope to one day 
make a film that could be mentioned in the same sentence with Citizen Kane. Wow. And I haven't done that. I haven't done that. I still have the hope, but the hope diminishes oh, as, we, as the years. No, no, seriously. I think you have three movies that definitely could be said in the same sentence as Citizen Kane. No, no, you're just too kind, and we, we, we're too fond of each other, but believe me, I know. There's, I mean, there's nothing that I can compare to Beethoven's Fifth or Ninth Symphony. There's nothing that I care to talk about in the symphonic world that is in a class with those works, you know, on a grand scale that everyone can recognize, that everyone knows when they hear them. But it's a matter of taste, too. Not everybody likes that. Not everybody would like Citizen Kane. Some people yeah. might like the French Connection better, or they might like to live and die in L.A. or The Exorcist. Well, it, they're, they're uh, not that well-informed. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Was there one work that made each of you want to do that? Hmm? What was your aha moment? I had, uh, I mean, I grew up singing in, in church and in school choirs and things, um, but I had a high school choir director that said, I think you can do this. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, what is that? And my mom uh, got online. I'm a Flo native Floridian and or figured out that there was, not online, but my mom figured out that there was um, a three tenors concert down in Miami and, mm -hmm. and took me. And I, when I watched those three gentlemen do what they did, I thought, oh my gosh, I had no idea I could learn how to do that with my voice. And mm -hmm. so I said, I want to do that. I want to see if I can do it. And then, um, you know, I got into college and then Placido started a young artist program in Washington, D.C. And I got in and then, you know, there you go. She's Carrie now. <laughs> Mine was Placido too. I saw Placido singing Tosca on TV live from Rome. Yeah. And church, I mean, we have very similar stories, really. And church choir and... And I saw Placido and I, at 11 years old, pointed to the screen and I said, mom, I want to do that. And she said, yeah, honey, okay, yeah. And, you know, fast forward, it was my degree in college. And I said, I want to be singing on the Met stage by the time I'm 30. And my 35th birthday, I sang Cyrano de Bergerac with Placido Domingo as Cyrano. And he sang happy birthday to me. And I just felt... <laughs> I mean, it was, it was like, but you say ambition and I, my whole life was opera. Oh, like wow. Everything I did till that moment was to get there. Well, that, that's another factor, isn't it? Which is inspiration. Mm -hmm. yep. it, it, but that's luck. That's where luck comes in. You had to be at the right place at the right time yeah. to see Placido perform this on television and the three tenors in Florida. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Did Zubin conduct that, Carrie? I honestly, I don't remember. He did really, most of them. He, he did. Conducted, he started it. He uh, was the conductor for the three tenors and you know all the early major performances. Can I tell including you? Las Vegas. I um. Oh, sorry. The I have to say that I have to set set this straight for the record. I'm I'm so grateful for Placido starting that young artist program and for you know being one of the ones on the panel that chose me to be in the program. But I have to say, I mean, when I was a kid and I heard Pavarotti do what he did, 
I mean, that just ripped my heart out of my body. And I just thought, I mean, I've just been a super fan of his, you know, ever since. So, and the documentary that was just put out by Ron Howard from him was yeah. really interesting and enlightening. And, um, and yeah, and, and also Pavarotti was one of my father's favorites. And so that connected us in a way with opera. So um, he had a special place in my heart for that. I had to just put that on the record. <laughs> Hi. Yeah. Well, that was an incredible uh, performance. The three tenors. Every yes. time you saw it, it was something more amazing to hear and to see. Because this is great. Mm -hmm. When I was yeah. when I was a student at USC in LA, they asked a lot of us music students if we wanted to be ushers or sing in the chorus. Where? At, at, when it was at Dodger Stadium, the three tenors. Oh. Remember mm -hmm. that with with yeah. as well and. I wasn't good enough to be in the chorus, so I was usher, and I got about that far away from Placido Domingo and all, you know, Luciano and Jose Carreras, and literally, I just was like, yeah, of course, all the celebrities. So I seated Richard Simmons, the most, <laughs> the, the you know, the 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 weight loss guru, Richard Simmons. Yeah, I remember. He's like, honey, come on, come jazzercise with me. <laughs> I gotta see people here. <laughs> How are we talking about Richard Simmons on this video? I don't understand. Because <laughs> he was there. And it's making Billy laugh, and I love that. <laughs> the room where the room where it all happened. Sick, <laughs> say in Hamilton. Mm -hmm. uh, have you have you crashed making films? I want to know this because they all oh. is that French oh. <laughs> How many what, Sandra? Cars. How many cars did you wreck making your movies? Not that many. Really? Uh, no. Uh, I think we had we had two cars that got a little smashed, but that's about it. Then in Sorcerer. Uh, I was going for a stunt where a car rolls on its side and turns over and that that took away about 15 cars. <laughs> we couldn't do it. I finally had to bring in this very famous stuntman from outside who could do this gag. And yeah. I, I, I brought him in and he was able to do it in one take. Wow. But I, I only do one take of anything unless it's something that's broken or something but by the grace of god i never had anyone get a twisted ankle on a film and and i wouldn't i don't believe it's worth it okay if, if a mouse got a twisted ankle to to get an effect in a film so it has to look dangerous but not be dangerous and that's the trick Today they can do that a lot easier because yeah. they have computer-generated imagery, which you you know I I never had, uh, but uh, they they can do the most dangerous and bizarre effects without any difficulty at all. Everything that you see in the films that I did, we had to do, and it was only again by the grace of God that we didn't hurt somebody. And you did a lot of them yourself, right? You filmed a lot of those. Yeah, I filmed the good part of the chase in the French Connection. Whoa. 
because the two camera, the director of photography and the camera operator mm -hmm. were both married men with children and I wasn't at the time. Okay. And so I didn't want them to have to get inside that car doing 90 miles an hour with no control through the streets of Brooklyn. Wow. Did you have permits for all of that? No, I had permits for none of it. Who would give you a permit to do that? So you know, nobody. We just did it. We did it. I had I had like-minded people working with me. Oh, I love you. Let, let's do it. And nobody and, got you know, arrested? No, no, because a lot of the like-minded people were cops. <laughs> they were off-duty cops. Movies nowadays. What do you think of them? Oh, yeah. I don't see a lot of films now. No. I, I look at uh, older films. Uh, you know, we have a screening room at home. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I look at older films that I've always loved. But, you know, first of all, there's no theaters to go to. But no. second, the, the quality of, of the stuff doesn't really appeal to me. No. You know, it, it's a lot of CGI, a lot of superheroes and heroines, you know, flying across the screen in a cape and tights and saving <laughs> the, the world. Story over and over, isn't it, Billy? It's the same. Yeah, what? it's not for me. So predictable. Yeah. It is for a lot of people. These films make a lot of money, especially young people, but they're, they're just not for me. No. You know, so I listen to music and read a lot. I read a lot more than I normally would have been able to. Yeah, I know. What about the movie? Uh, I had told Flounder I had to ask you this, but what about the movie that came out with John Krasansky and his wife called A Quiet Time? And how oh, a quiet place. A quiet place. Sorry. I love that. I thought it was terrific. I did too. There was something I about I, that. It, it was that, that's the real deal. Mm -hmm. I love. They've made a sequel. Yes. That they yeah that they can't release because there's no mm -hmm. theaters open, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the only alternative is to release it on Netflix or Amazon Prime or oh. Hulu or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what makes a great artist? Do you think what makes a great if you had to say a great actor great artist what would you say well i as i told you i believe it's a gift yeah i mean no one can learn to act like spencer tracy or katherine hepper mm -hmm. you know uh and there, there are very few of those around in american film uh i frankly Carrie, I don't believe there's a lot of Johnny Cashes around today, <laughs> yeah. you know, or or Waylon Jennings, or oh, yeah. some of the greats of of that. Or so, what makes a great artist? First of all, it's in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. Someone that you may think is great, I may not even have noticed. Yeah. Uh, perhaps you can name an actor who. I mean. Marlon Brando was very interesting, but he was very unusual. Mm -hmm. you, you can't learn how to do that. You can't even imitate it. And the, the big loss in American film has been the scripts, the, the writing. You know, it, it's all come down to that spandex 
type of hmm. picture. Interesting. And and I, but there were great screenwriters when I started and back mm -hmm. in the day. That there are few now. Uh, the legendary directors are all gone. Yeah. You know, people like Fellini and mm -hmm. uh, Michelangelo Antonioni mm -hmm. and um, uh, Ingmar Bergman and uh, so many others. And the Americans were so great, like John Ford. And you found, uh, it, it seems like in your movies, for instance, I just said last night we watched Jade and you have a young, young David Caruso in that. And it seems like a lot of your movies, you use these young artists that had so much talent that were just ready to explode. Did you choose them? Did you? Yeah. Oh yeah. You and I'll, I'll tell you that I don't think it's too much different in opera, but mm -hmm. it's the cast. If, I mean, 90% of the effectiveness of a film or a play or an opera is the cast. Mm -hmm. And if you've miscast a role, it's never going to work. It, no matter what you do, no matter how cleverly you direct it, or your concept, how, how interesting, or whatever, if the cast isn't perfect, the film's not going to work. Yeah, That's Linda. one thing about Citizen Kane. Everybody is spot on and great. And I, th I had that with The Exorcist. I had a great cast, and they made the film. Yes. Including two people who had never been in a film before. <laughs> Jason Miller, who played Father Karras, and Linda Blair, who was 13 years old. Wow. Brilliant. Really. Now, Carrie, you That was a gift of the movie, God. There you go. Do you feel the same about film writers and scripts as, as TV? Do you think that there's, is there any talent in America for TV writing? There has been, that I can name, you know, off the top of my head, that fellow David Chase who wrote The Sopranos. Yeah. He created, the, did you guys ever see any of those? Yes. Those are sensational. Mm -hmm. And there are various other things. There's, there's a lot of interesting things happening in, in television or streaming. Tell me now, okay, so you've had a, an, an amazing career. You have. And you've won how many Academy Awards? I know I've got one downstairs somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> any regrets on your career? Anything you change? Probably so, but you know, they would require a lot of context to go into. Okay. okay. Uh, they're, they're, not all of the films I made are of the same quality by far. You know, some of them just don't work. And that was, you know, mostly my fault. Hmm. Uh, where, you know, I screwed up. Um, and this happened... If you make enough films, you're going to eventually screw up. Well, it's the same uh, with opera. We, if you sing enough performances, you're eventually going to screw up. You're going to pick one that, mm -mm, bad idea. Yeah. Or perhaps the production wasn't what it, what it should have been. Uh, yeah, no, I, so I, I do have some regrets. But overall, no. I mean, to have a, a, a job 
and a career where you can make anything is a gift. Yeah. Make cinema or make opera or, you know, make whatever the hell it is. I don't think of myself, and I've said this, it's in that documentary that I mentioned that's on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Think of myself as an artist at all. I never even want to go there. I think it's it's a profession. And as a profession, it's an it's a good impression. Uh, uh, it's a, it, it's a good um, profession. But I don't. There are people, of course, who have made art out of cinema. Mm -hmm. But I'm not one of them. Uh, Fellini has, without a doubt, has made art. Uh, as has Alain René and Antonioni and Ingmar Bergman. Mm -hmm. Japanese, and what's his name? Japanese. Um, Akira Kurosawa. Kurosawa. Beautiful. Uh, Akira Kurosawa was a great artist. Absolutely. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not in that league. And I, you don't need to say, oh, no, come on. You are. No, I'm not. I yeah. know. No, no, I know that I, I'm not. But because I've seen their films. <laughs> so I know I know what the hell they achieved. Uh, a lot of people have done it a few times. Uh, a few people have done it a lot of times, but uh, no, I I certainly am not an artist. I don't set out to make art. When I directed opera, I simply set out to tell the story that the composer and the librettist often the same person, but not always, uh, had called for. Theirs was the art. The, you know, the art of Il Tritico, oh, which Sandra and I worked on, uh, that's great art. That's unbelievable. It's yeah. not as often as mentioned as Tosca or Aida or, you know, the standard classic repertoire. It is often not mentioned in that class. But to me, it's every bit as good. It's an amazing accomplishment. Yeah. But again, it required, which I was lucky to have, a fantastic cast for all three of them. That's what made it. What you want to say, Carrie? I just wanted to ask you, I mean, then would you call yourself a gifted storyteller? I would take out the one word out of that. <laughs> a storyteller, yes. Okay. Um, and that's that's what you're trying to do on film. Uh, not always succeeding. Okay. Uh, but there are many ways to tell a story. And the most interesting way to do that is a way that has not been done before. Yeah. You know, to, like Citizen Kane stands by itself sure. as, a, as a great work of art. Uh, no story has been told quite like that or so well mm -hmm. and has been so influential. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go watch that tonight. You have inspired me to watch it again. Oh, listen, give yourself to it, though. Yeah. You know, don't don't be running off to pick up a phone call. Oh, no, 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 no. When we sit down at night, we are immersed in what we're watching. So well, this you'll be immersed in this. Mm -hmm. It's it's extraordinary. It's the. I would say it's probably the ninth symphony of cinema. Okay, wow. 
What do you still want to achieve and do in your life, Billy? What haven't you done that you're like, ah, I got to do it still? Not a particular project per se, but you know, I just love to keep, to have the ability to keep doing it. Uh, and I have not made a lot of films in well over 50 years. I think I've made 15 films. I think that's the number because it takes me a long time to find something, you know, uh, that I really want to do that I think is worth doing. And I don't always succeed, but there's some things that I feel are worth doing and others that I don't. I oh, know. You saw Stravinsky conduct live. Yes, at Orchestra Hall in Chicago. That's and what And he uh, was brought out, he was really up in years. I don't know whether it was, he was in his 90s yet or late 80s, certainly. And he was helped to the podium. <laughs> but there was, of course, no music stand and no music on the podium. And this rather frail creature was helped to the podium and there was a hush that came over the audience. And I happened to be there that night. Wow. And he gave the downbeat and it unleashed <laughs> a, a, an earthquake of incredible sound. Wow. It was the rite of spring. Mm. And that was written in 1913 and first performed as a ballet. Yeah. Where it was completely unsuccessful. Yes, it was they hated a total it. Total failure. Yeah. People threw things at the stage oh. <laughs> and there were fights that broke out in the audience. Yes. Yes. And little did anybody know mm -mm. that that was going to be the seminal work of the 20th century. Right. Which it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's how you can only define greatness. Not just something you like. Right. There are a lot of things I like. I mean, I I like the Miles Davis sextet. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, their recording of uh, Kind of Blue, which I, mm -hmm. th that album, which is the mm -hmm. best-selling jazz album of all time. Yeah. Uh, has been around since 1960. That's <laughs> a long time in that jazz. Is. Yeah, sure. But I saw them do... I saw the Miles, Dex Sextet, Miles Davis Sextet live in Chicago many times. Wow. They played at a place called the Sutherland Hotel on the okay. south side of Chicago. It was around 47th and South Parkway. Okay. And um, they played on, the, on top of the bar. And I thought I was going down there. I was about the only white guy. And... Um, I knew this stuff was great, but I didn't realize that they were great <laughs> masterpieces right. that would live forever. Right. And this was Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Cannonball Adderley, uh, Bill Evans, and Philly Joe Jones, and, uh. Paul, and Paul Chambers was the bassist. And I mean, it was beyond that. That was great American art. Yeah. And yeah. I, I didn't know that then. I just thought this is sensational. <laughs> that yeah. it was brand new and it was something else. Yeah. I still listen to that stuff. Cool. I can still listen to all of those artists I mentioned 
doing their own solo stuff. I love jazz. I, I, I guess I have a great love for, for music. I have a great love for painting, of course, but I've never taken a brush to canvas okay. because I've seen all 36 of the known Vermeers. Really? Yeah, they all played at the, at Billy's the National- Billy's seen a lot and Billy has done a lot. I'm telling you, you have lived your life and I admire it so much. You know, you lived it. How many people can say that they lived their life fully? And I- Well, you guys are doing that. I'm, I'm proud of you both. And it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Are you guys having fun with this? Yes. You know, I think the biggest, uh, I'll speak for myself, but we've talked about it all the time. We have learned so much about so many different people and about so many different things doing this. Because I think that by doing it by video, there is kind of a, a barrier that you, allows us to ask things that we might not ask or talk about in person. Mm-hmm. And I think that our viewers feel that as well. Uh, Carrie's like, no, she- I'd ask you anything, I don't care. <laughs> no, Helping people get through this, people feel, they know that we're feeling all the, the same things that they're feeling. And I'm sure you're feeling it as well. You wanna get out, you wanna do things. You wanna see your family and friends and you can't, just like us. And Well, we see our family and friends, they come yeah. over. Not they come over and we sit outside an appropriate distance away. Yes. It's not quite the same. Last night we had two friends over, or last afternoon for lunch. And, you know, we still managed to keep that contact going. I think for me, it's really about the connection. I always say my people. I miss my creative people. I miss that connection, that camaraderie, that laughter, those deep conversations that sometimes you end up in after a rehearsal over cocktails or whatever. And and that's, that's why this to me is in a way, Sandra and I've said this numerous times that it's kind of like a therapy session because it fills that void that I'm missing right now, being in a rehearsal room, being on a stage, um, or these conversations. So thank you so much for, for really, for talking to us and hanging out for an hour. It was a great pleasure. A great, great pleasure to meet you, Carrie. And to see you again, Sandra. Uh, really, it does my heart good. And stay in touch, will you? 